1: Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
0: Hey everybody, I'm George Whitridge, ARK analyst covering fintech, more specifically the lending side of fintech. And we also got a special guest on today, Dan Kimmerling of Deciens Capital,
2: and as well as my co-analyst, Max Friedrich. Thank you, George, and welcome, Dan. We're looking forward to a great discussion here. Dan has really a very rich background in fintech, and I think we're going to learn a lot today and Dan, a great starting point would be if you could just tell us a bit about your career, how you end up ended up managing really one of the few fintech seed funds in the u s what brought you there what's your background
3: yeah I I'm from New Jersey, and then I went to the University of Chicago for college and graduate school. I moved to Silicon Valley to be an early team member at TechCrunch. And after TechCrunch, I helped start, run, and sell a prepaid company called Gifley. And there, it became clear to me that what we now call open banking would happen. I recall very distinctly in the summer of 2012 feeling like banks would have to have open APIs. That was a long time ago. <laughs> and then that led me to start a company called Standard Treasury, which was backed by Y Combinator and Index Ventures and RE and a couple others, where we help banks open public APIs. You know, this is very early open banking. And ultimately, we successfully sold that business to Silicon Valley Bank. And it was during my time at Silicon Valley Bank that I reflected upon this idea that there are incredible seed funds and there are incredible fintech venture capital funds, but that there's nothing at that intersection of early stage fintech venture capital. And even double-click on it even more, where there is capital, it rarely will lead financings. A lot of them will You know, follow on financings, or if they're angels or smaller managers, they're not in a position to lead rounds. And so that's been, you know, really Decian's, if it stood for one thing, it's leading seed rounds in fintech companies in the United States. And that's what I've been doing now for three years full time. It'll be three years and about three weeks. So we're coming up on the anniversary.
0: That's great. So, Dan. What are some of the exciting early stage fintech themes that you've identified and are, you know, looking to invest across?
3: Yeah. I mean, there are probably six major themes I'm tracking now. One of them is around aging population in the United States and northern Europe, Japan, the demography of the population is really aging quite rapidly and that's going to be putting a lot of pressure on financial services, and that'll probably be over the next 30 years to greater or lesser degree. And so I'm very involved with a business called TrueLink Financial, which is doing financial services for the elderly and their caregivers. That's one thing I've been working on. I think the second thing I've been working on is open banking. I have a long history in open banking and continue to be very involved in the Community of open banking advocates in the US and UK. I have a portfolio company called Treasury Prime that is very involved with open banking. I think wallets, you know, George Max, we've talked a little bit about some of the work I've done in wallet business models, especially abroad. I'm extremely aggressive in my investing in mobile wallet businesses outside of the United States. I think another thing I've been working on are vertical banks. You know, banks are banking business models that target niche segments. You know, TrueLink for the elderly, I'm involved with one called Endeavor, which does it for dentists, optometrists, veterinarians, and other medical practice owners. I see a lot of vertical banks. Those are some of the core themes I, I've been working on over the last couple of years and think we'll continue to work on for the foreseeable future. I think that
2: was a great kind of opening into some of the more detailed discussions we can have later and kind of dive into wallets, what you see globally outside the US and so forth. But I would also like to take the opportunity to, for you, maybe kind of talk about the last 10 years and kind of what you see happened in fintech, were there any big promises that you know, maybe we're not kept. For example, what I remember is this one slide that was put up by like a data research firm in 2015, where they had this screenshot of the Wells Fargo website or any bank website. And you had kind of, I think it was 150 logos of different startups tackling these different products and services. Kind of for each product or service, you had like one kind of specific startup and the thesis was that all of these different startups will kind of unbundle the bank and for every bank, a product or service, it will be a specific startup. And now it feels like there is this kind of rebundling where a lot of the wallet companies are adding services and services and so forth. So like some thesis, I guess that's natural kind of change over time or they you find out it's actually not true or this didn't happen. Were there any kind of these moments throughout your career or kind of that you see sticking out in terms of fintech over the recent years?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the promises that was made and which has been kept is that the digital experience has gotten better. You know, I'll just point to Chase. I mean, Chase has invested an incredible amount of time, money and energy in their mobile UX. And I think the Chase mobile app is pretty good. And so I think there's been a promise which was made, which is that the user experience has to improve. And that has been kept. I think people assumed that that promise would be kept by disruptors, some of which it has, you know, the squares and the stripes of the world. But some of that promise has been kept by incumbents, you know, the chases and capital ones of the world. I think that As a student of the history of innovation, what you see is there's like basically two moves unbundling and rebundling. And they, where which of those is in vogue switches over time. So in 2013, 14, 15, there was a lot of unbundling. 2018, 19, 20, there's a lot of questions around what is the right bundle for this new era. And I think. I'm sure that in the coming years ahead there will be another wave of people trying to unbundle and rebundle after that. I think the promise of open banking has started to mature. There's a very famous line in investing, which is being right at the wrong time and being wrong are indistinguishable. Right. If I'm honest, I started working on open banking in 2012. That was just way too early. Way, way too early. I would say now in 2020, we're starting to see the power of open banking and embedding financial business models in non-financial businesses, whether that's embedded lending, embedded banking, payment services, etc. cetera. But I don't think the promise that was made there has not yet been fully realized. It is taking longer to realize than I think a lot of people had expected. I think the other thing is I did not see, I'll speak for myself, I did not see the mobile revolution being as big as it is. I mean, six billion people have smartphones, give or take. You know, in North America, uh, smartphone penetration is insanely high. And there's been a lot of really they're only two platforms, Android and iOS. And having such a rich computing experience with embedded sensors and always on connectivity with very few software platforms means that if you can figure out the right business model, the amount of distribution is insanely high. You know, And I think really the first people to figure this out were Instagram. And then WhatsApp kind of took it to another level. And we've talked a little bit about some of the wallet businesses that I'm involved with. The speed of the adoption of some of these mobile technologies is incredible.
2: Yeah, there is an interesting chart that we put together last year at Arc, taking the unbanked rate in sub-Saharan Africa and plotting that. And on, on the same chart, plotting the mobile phone penetration. And it's basically an inverse correlation over like six, seven years where each year the mobile phone penetration will go up, I don't know, 5% and the the unbanked rate will decline by 5%. So it's, it's so powerful. And maybe we could use that to kind of dive into what you talked about, kind of mobile wallets that you especially focus on the international kind of geographies because according to you, some of the US banks actually did a okay job or good job in terms of digitization so is that something that led you to say the opportunity and the developing world is just so much bigger
3: well i mean i as an analyst or portfolio manager i try and think about the problem both as a top-down problem and a bottom-up problem and if you think about it from a top-down perspective most of the world's population in fact the vast majority of the world's population lives outside of North America. And the fastest growing economies are not in North America. They're in Africa, Southeast Asia, etc. So you want to look at the economies that are the most vibrant and most poised to have explosive growth in the next, whatever your investment period is. For me, in my current fund, that's the next seven years. but. You know, like over the, you know, as a portfolio manager over the next 20 years or however long I, I do this work. And then you start looking at the bottoms up kind of analysis and you look at products like Gojek in Indonesia. I'm not an investor in Gojek, but you just see how quickly they've been able to become the dominant mobile financial institution in Indonesia and Indonesia is not a small country it's a massive economy and you look at something like bcash in bangladesh i don't know, like a third of the gdp of bangladesh flows through bcash which is just you know bangladesh is not the world's largest economy but it's not a trivial country either from an economic dynamism perspective and the idea that a mobile wallet could be that powerful and then you you look at things like Ant or the financial services work that is happening within the WeChat ecosystem. And you just, I mean, it's incredible. I had the privilege when I was at Silicon Valley bank to work on our China business. And so I went to China a number of times with Silicon Valley bank. And you see the power of embedding financial services into the WeChat ecosystem. And you're just like, this is the future. And so You know, that sort of like led me to wonder what are the right models and the right geographies that can allow you to get escape velocity on these businesses. And without going into a lot of specific proprietary information, what I can say is that what we're seeing in Africa is the adoption of mobile wallets at a velocity which I think is unprecedented. So that's like another thing. The final thing I would point to is what we're seeing is the power of multi-jurisdictional wallets, wallets that work in more than one country. And that creates the power for a global set of network effects rather than merely domestic or regional network effects. And that's something that I've been spending a lot of my energy on.
0: That's great. Thanks, Dan. You know, Max and I have looked into this quite a bit. And I just to lay the context for our listeners, you know, I think it's particularly relevant to just sort of, you know, put things in sort of plain primitives, if you will. And by that, I mean, you know, we talked about these mobile phones being adopted at incredible rates and the sheer population that is outside of North America being absolutely tremendous. And, you know, I think it goes to show this sort of leapfrog of technology. And by that, I mean, if you look at Africa, for instance, or you know Southeast Asia, landlines were not very well-developed You know, 20, 30 years ago. It's very hard, it's very expensive, and it's time-consuming to wire up an entire continent, let alone an entire country. But with the advent of cell phone technology, you're talking about being able to receive information on, you know, a smart device, practically wherever you are nowadays. And so that that sort of obviates the need to have, you know, these physical landlines. And I think one of the points Dan was getting at is really just that, you know, we're moving from this physical, like the sheer requirement to have physical presence, no longer is the case today. And you're seeing that
3: in, well, in the mobile laws. George, I would actually point to a historical observation, which is in the 1950s, AT&T made a serious analysis around building a disruptive national bank. And like, there's a lot of history here, which I can share with your listeners in the show notes if they're interested. But AT&T realized that because they'd wired up the entire United States they were in a position to go after the large national financial institutions this didn't come to fruition because AT&T was subsequently then put under an antitrust investigation and had to I'm not an antitrust lawyer but had to sign a settlement with the United States government at which point they abandoned that plan but there's like a long at least 60 year history of this convergence of telephony and financial services. And, like, once telephony hits a certain density of users, I think because financial services is a largely dematerialized industry, the ability to have low cost distribution through telephony is an obvious play. Yes,
0: yeah, certainly. I didn't know that actually about ATT. So, thanks for bringing that in there. I'll definitely take a look at that. But, yeah, certainly agree that this is perhaps probably one of the most exciting times in my opinion at least to be in this industry because there is such a convergence of you know this cheap distribution but also at the same time the technology being at a point where it's actually really really powerful so with that you know we talked about the last 10 years of fintech how do you see fintech evolving over the next decade what really gets you excited
3: i mean i think we're just really scratching the surface of what this wave of financial innovation is going to do, and we're only scratching the surface for a number of reasons. One is it's hard to fully fathom how large the financial industry is on a global perspective. If you just measure it in the most direct fashion, financial services constitutes approximately 20% of global GDP. And what we know is that financial services is the largest consumer of IT software and services as a sector. And so, I mean, the scope of the prize is immense. So that's one observation. I think the second thing is many more companies will be in the financial services business through kind of embedded finance capabilities. The innovation will go global and some countries will do so faster. And I think probably the most exciting thing to me is that we're creating a context where smart, ambitious professionals, especially early career professionals, feel like working on innovative businesses is a socially acceptable career trajectory. You know, when I went to college, you either like investment banking, management consulting, or graduate school. Those are like more or less the three options that were socially acceptable. And the idea that I would like move to Silicon Valley and help start businesses, that was looked at askance. Whereas today, I think that you would have a young professional graduating from the University of Chicago, for example, going to work at a startup or start a startup, I think it's become much more socially acceptable. And that creates an entirely new labor pool for the innovation economy to help finance, which I'm very excited about.
2: I think one of the reflections of that, if I just look into maybe our little fintech Twitter bubble, if you want to call it that, is, and it is kind of putting a few points of what you just talked about together is how Shopify is just hiring all kind of fintech talent that is out there. It seems like, I don't know if you also feel like that, but it seems like that company is executing at a really high pace. And yes, we just talked about kind of small startups and as a graduate kind of going to a small startup, but it also feels like that a lot of people really share that vision of yeah fintech having a huge runway now and potentially it even being accelerated by the you know very unfortunate covid nineteen crisis, but maybe got even a little bit boost with that and shopify might also be one of the companies that you know could be or it is already very relevant in this embedded finance future that you were talking about just in your last answer so I don't know do you think it would be a good idea to kind of for for our listeners who might not be familiar with the concept of embedded finance, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that concept at the example of Shopify.
3: Yeah, well, I think what I would just say as like, oh, leading. It's also Shopify is based in Canada, and this idea that you know Shopify. I was just looking up their stock chart. Shopify is like a hundred and twenty billion dollar market cap business, and the idea that you would have a hundred and twenty. Billion dollar fintech giant in Canada, you know, that is a bit of an anti pattern relative to perhaps some of the more archetypical narratives. And it goes, you know, Max, to your point, it's just like continues to show the dynamism there. You know, I think embedded finance is a broad concept, but the way I think about it is. Historically, banks have manufactured products and banks have distributed products through their wholly owned branch networks. That's like a historically generally accurate model. And there have been some innovations on that. You know, Capital One really figured out how to manufacture products and distribute it through direct to consumer mail, for example. That was one of the great innovations of Capital One. And E-Trade kind of figured out how to do it online to some degree very early in the 90s. I think embedded finance is the idea that you'll have financial institutions manufacture products, but you're gonna have non-financial institutions be the distributor, and they will embed, quote unquote, financial products into their workflows. You know, I think, an obvious example would be you look at Airbnb, and Airbnb is a major player in the global foreign exchange business in the sense that you have Americans booking stays in dollars and you know traveling to Europe, and there has to be like FX, but neither the host nor the guest ever sees that FX. It just magically happens. They've embedded the foreign exchange into the user experience. And you see companies like Affirm, as an example, embedding financial services into the checkout flows of companies like Peloton, right? Like the fact that a firm is embedded in that checkout is great for the customer, it's great for Peloton and it's great for Affirm,
2: so. Got it. And I think Affirm is also working with Shopify now, right? I think that's something that-
3: I believe that there was a press release about that in the last week or two. Yeah. Right, so you have embedded finance and you have platforms like Airbnb, you have companies like Affirm. And then what's super interesting about Shopify is they've turned themselves from basically being a website builder and online e-commerce store platform to being a full stack financial institution for their merchants and for the customers of their merchants. And you see this with Shopify Pay, shopify credit shopify capital and i don't want to just pick on shopify i think square has really done a nice job with this i think big commerce i think stripe is definitely making some moves in this space you know there are others of course but it just strikes me that financial institutions have historically been very wide businesses they've tried to serve wide swaths of the population you look at a Wells Fargo, for example, or a Chase, they try and cover the largest audience possible. I think over time, we're going to see many, many, many more financial services businesses that are trying to not cover wide audiences, but cover small audiences very deeply and try and really serve them in a differentiated way that actually adds a lot of value to their business. And Some of them will be full stack financial institutions like bank holding companies, industrial loan companies. Some of them will partner with banks like Square and Stripe are not banks. They partner with traditional financial institutions. And then you'll see open banking service providers like Treasury Prime in the United States or Rails Bank in Europe be kind of the glue that holds a lot of these businesses together just those Twilio has been the glue that has held a lot of businesses that rely on telephony together.
2: Yeah. I just wanted to pick up on one thing that you said that you see kind of Shopify embedding financial services, not only on the merchant side, but now also continuously on their consumer side. And that's something for us at ARC where we always get very interested when we see a company trying to build this kind of two-sided network. And, you know, if you listen to Square's earnings calls over recent quarters, like Jack Dorsey was like hammering this into the heads of analysts. Like we have such a great, like our value proposition is basically that we have this two-sided networks, that we have this kind of direct front-end access to consumers with the cash app and to merchants with our Square, ha- square hardware.
3: And oh, if if I may, Max, yeah, all credit due to Jack. I mean, he saw this a long time ago, and they've been working on Square Cash for a long time. A long time, George. You were at Square, do you remember when Square Cash v1 launched?
0: Yeah, actually, before I I started at the company, it started in late 2013, actually, as as an email
3: protocol first, right? I remember like you could email people money, right? That was. So, you know, Square's been working on Square Cash now for approximately seven years. It takes a lot of leadership to invest seven years in a product, and only really, maybe in the last year or year and a half, has it been recognized. Five, six, seven years of time, money, and energy put into a product, and only recently has it been appreciated. So kudos to Jack for the vision and the fortitude to stick with it.
2: Yeah. And we could probably record a whole session just on kind of the potential, what they could do with all of this, what they've basically built with those two networks.
3: But I think yeah. that, if yeah. I may, it seems like the point of leverage in this ecosystem is around this concept of buy now, pay later, BNPL, right? And you see a lot of, people focusing their energy on BNPL. Most obviously would be a firm, but I think we'll see more people focus on this BNPL space on a go forward basis. And I think there's a big opportunity in B2B buy now, pay later. I don't think that's been as explored as some of the consumer buy now, pay later capabilities or opportunities.
2: Yeah, I think especially for us as public market investors, the whole B2B payment side and fintech side is really not that investable for us yet. I think there are a couple of companies like maybe Bill.com, but a lot of that big payments business on the B2B side is still managed by the large banks. And as you said, there is this just huge potential. I just wanted to go back really quickly just to your wallet comments earlier and kind of like... Tied this into what we just talked about with Square and Shopify and kind of what they've been building. Kind of the, the point I was getting at is that we're always very excited when we see companies building out those two networks or using their existing customer bases or user networks to, yeah, if you want to say embed financial services. Like, for example, we saw with WeChat and WeChat Paint China and Alibaba and Alipay in China too. And then you could also make the examples that you talked about with Gojek and Grab in Southeast Asia. And that's always kind of great from a customer acquisition perspective because you're acquiring these customers relatively cheaply. They're probably also involved in some other service of yours, so they might have a higher retention rate. And that's also one of the kind of key competitive advantages we see Cash App having versus the bulk of of challenger banks that you have now, as cash up is morphing into the challenger bank space as well, is that they have this P2P payments network where they can acquire customers relatively cheaply and retain them maybe better than others. So I was just wondering is kind of what are the strategies that you're looking for in your or like what kind of strategies are uh, being applied by your companies that you invest in globally, like the wallet companies? What are you looking for there in terms of customer acquisition, in terms of virality along those kind of lines?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of context specific. So for example, what works in Nigeria will not work in Kenya. If they won't work because the architecture of the Nigerian banking system it's existing mobile wallet infrastructure is just very different than what's in Kenya or Tanzania, for example. Right, you, you can't be overly dogmatic. You have to understand that the architecture of each country is quite different. I think what I would broadly say is that there are three strategies, which I've seen. Strategy one is kind of what I think Square has been doing which is building a kind of neo bank like experience and using that to get customers and then enriching the experience. I think the second strategy is what Gojek has done and Grab has done and actually what PayPal did in the 90s, which was build a payment business or financial services business on top of another business. Right? So I. The history of PayPal is that PayPal got really big on eBay. You're probably probably familiar with this history. And like what Gojek and Grab are doing is getting very large financial services businesses on the back of their ride sharing business and e-hailing business. I think the third strategy is using a P2P methodology, right? These are all bootstrapping mechanisms to large network size. I think the third one is using a P2P system. You know, having you guys cover Venmo, I think the question is like, how do you go from building a P2P system to building a full stack financial institution and adding value to the P2P customers over time? You know, in my personal opinion, I think an open platform is probably the right solution here. and. I look at what Intuit has done, for example, with their partner ecosystem. And having like a really rich partner ecosystem means that you can create a lot of value for partners, for the platform, and for customers without having to create all the capabilities yourself. Right? I look at Square, I think Square has done incredible work. But if Square had a bit more of a vibrant partner ecosystem, I think they could have even gone that much further, that much faster. You know, I think it's not really in their DNA to have a, you know, they have a very specific design and product sensibility. And so having an open ecosystem is not very aligned with that. But I think they are, you know, this question of like bootstrapping mechanisms and then how do you take the bootstrap network and empower and accelerate value creation is, I think, very important and is quite context specific. That's great,
0: Dan. Thanks. You know, a couple of things sort of struck me as you've been speaking. So, you know, we started out the conversation with, you know, you talking about one of the examples that you provided was Chase and that, you know, them providing like a pretty good mobile application, mobile wallet, if you will. So I guess I just want to propose a provocative question. If this, you know, mobile app is great, why has it not seen, you know, the adoption that a SquareCat or Cash App or a Venmo have seen you know, in the same period of time. Like I think Max had a great you know, tweet thread on this last week, where you know Cash App is now at 30 million monthly active users, and the only bank in the US that's ahead of it has 38 million, which Max, correct me if I'm wrong, is JP Morgan. So why are we seeing just, I mean, is it simply just that these mobile wallets, these fintech companies, have, you know, inherently lower cost structures that they can actually just provide services to these people. And then I guess more broadly, what are the implications of that, you know, on the international front, you've referenced, you know, a couple African countries, so a lot to unpack there. But yeah, we'd just love to get your views, particularly if it's just that this horizontal, you know, banking structure is inadequate. When you get to a certain point, you're not able to efficiently serve. Is that thesis that you're not able to efficiently serve customers in an efficient means
3: i mean i think there are a number of questions there so like one question is why does vertical banking make sense now when it didn't historically and the simple answer for that is the internet right like in a world where the primary distribution methodology for financial products were branches is you had to go into a town with a branch and be able to serve everybody in that town, regardless of their specific context. The internet allows you to reach a national or sometimes global audience with specific capabilities and then find the audience that resonates with those capabilities. So that's why I think vertical banking now makes a lot more sense. The economics of vertical banking make a lot more sense. You know... On your question around the Chase app versus the Square Cash app, it strikes me that part of it is there's quite a bit of business model difference. So, you know, banks, their primary business model is in what's known as net interest margin, the spread between their cost of acquiring deposits and their, you know, net of churn of those deposits, and the rate at which they can lend those deposits out, less charge offs, you know, as a very simplistic mental model. And for a company like Chase, their app is mostly designed to retain deposits and make it easy to lend money. And I I actually think Chase has done a really good job with that, you know. Jamie Dimon got the memo way earlier than most and really put a lot of time, money and energy into it. You know, at one point they had quite a large presence in Silicon Valley, of very sophisticated designers, product managers and engineers building and rebuilding infrastructure and applications for them. You know, I think for Square Cash, the business model is quite different. You know, they have their P2P product, they have their investing product, they have their crypto product. And so they're building their consumer business, but their consumer business is still quite modest relative to the size of their SME product. And I think a lot of what they're trying to do is use the Square Cash consumer product to drive SME adoption and vice versa and create a kind of, to Max's point, kind of two-sided network effect. You know, I think Venmo is is quite different in the sense that Venmo is still in a relatively nascent stage of its monetization. You know, they have the Venmo debit card where they monetize using debit interchange and they have the disbursement product, which allows for real-time disbursements with a fee. And I think, you know, this year they've talked about rolling out pay with Venmo at some scale. You know, I think for Venmo... It's really about making sure that there's real network density and that everybody that you want to pay on a P2P basis is on that platform. And you know, that's just a different business model than say what Square Cash is doing, which is itself a different business model than what Chase is doing. And maybe I would just say it is still an open question around which of these fintechs will become You know, the colloquial term we would use is top of wallet, the most salient financial relationship a consumer has. I think that used to be considered the direct deposit relationship that may no longer be the germane metric, but, you know, most consumers have one financial institution that they consider their go-to primary financial institution. I think for, you know, Chime, it's a modest number of their customers consider it their top of wallet relationship. I think more consumers consider their relationship with Square, with the Cash App, their primary application. But I think for a lot of Chase users, they are Chase customers and Chase is their primary financial institution. Even if maybe they have a Robinhood account and they maybe have a Square account and they maybe have a Acorns account or Wealthfront, whatever it may be.
2: Yeah, for us, that's also the big challenge that we see But at the same time, the big opportunity that these apps have, including Cash App, and, you know, moving more towards that, you know, monetization of a bank customer at maturity, as you would see at a Chase or Wells Fargo or Bank of America. And if they manage that, that would be, this is a huge opportunity. And even if they only manage it for a fraction of their customer base, that still,
3: I think, would be, you know, very big, and Ma- Max. Before, could I, yeah. Max, could I maybe stop you for one second? Yeah, I think George. There's another question though, which you didn't ask, which I think is perhaps a very salient question, which is if you look at the market cap of Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo is trading at, you know, 105 billion. Square is trading at 62 billion, and PayPal is trading at. 225 billion. So there's a real question around the market's reaction to net interest margin business models and the capital dependent right, right, banks by virtue of being in the net interest margin business and being subject to the Bank Holding Company Act and Basel III, all the Capital requirements of banks require more equity. And so they tend to have lower ROE return on equity than non bank financial institutions. And so I think Chase has done a great job. And I think Capital One has done quite a good job. And I think BBVA has done a good job. The question is not like Chase, BBVA, Capital One, et cetera, versus Square Cash. It's like from an investor perspective, is there a secular shift from the market's perception of net interest margin business models and their inherently lower return on equity to these higher return on equity non-bank business models? And you know, if the stock market is one indication, it would suggest that the investor sentiment is moving over time, which is not yeah. quite the question you asked, but I think a germane question to the conversation.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I just wanted to, yeah, for more context around those points, I think what we're seeing, and maybe others are seeing that too, and that's why there is this shift, is that banks actually might not have been that successful in upselling and cross selling their different services in the past. And that's why net that interest margin is kind of their main business. But if you look, couple of the big banks kind of break it down by segment their kind of of their consumer income or of their kind of income statement of their consumer group they break it down more granularly and then you'll see okay they make you know this much of their asset management product or kind of other products or insurance kind of outside their core lending capabilities but it's not that much and if you read some of the there's some data out there from Forrester you will see that 55% of consumers actually have relationships with two or more financial services providers. And per financial services providers, they consume 1.8 products on average. So for us, one big thesis is also that, and you've kind of touched on that before when you were talking about this marketplace approach, is that you know a cash app or a, another wallet, be it in the U.S. or outside of the U.S., could actually do a better job at cross-selling customers and offering them multiple financial services out of one application. And yeah, because consumers, yeah. you know, you could argue against it and say, well, they have kind of, you know, they're thinking about risk, so they want to kind of spread their assets across different providers. But at the same time, I think you can also make the argument that there is this possibility of of in the U.S. having one platform where which offers consumers multiple financial services. And that's one kind of our bull thesis
3: on the cash app. So, George Max, I'd say two things about that. The first thing I would say is ownership of the customer is an increasingly challenged concept. So I can go to Chase and buy Vanguard product, right? There's nothing about my relationship with Chase which makes me buying a Vanguard ETF or mutual fund, it doesn't diminish that relationship. And the asset management business has figured this out and done so quite nicely. The idea that I would go to Chase and buy a Wells Fargo certificate of deposit though, that is not yet something most financial institutions are comfortable with. Whereas, you know, in WeChat, the idea that I would go to WeChat and buy an insurance policy that is not created by Tencent, there's no issue with that. And that's, I think, a very interesting question and like something I'm very closely watching the evolution of. I think the second thing I would just point out to your audience, acknowledging that we're almost out of time, is I would encourage everybody who's interested in this topic to review the Investor Day presentation that Goldman Sachs put out early this year. And it is a class on how the most sophisticated banks are thinking about the evolution of their net interest margin business model relative to the share price performance and moving to lower cost deposits and lower cost funding models to improve the spread income and moving from just net interest margin income statement line to net interest margin plus fee income statement lines. And I think. Acknowledging that COVID has happened in the interim, I think the way that Goldman talked about it during their investor day presentations was really quite powerful. And and I'd encourage everybody to review that material.
0: So, Dan, I just have one last question for you, which is, you know, we've talked a lot about these mobile wallets evolving and, you know, why and why not, you know, specific companies are succeeding at, at this. But, you know, do you see this model, if you will, evolving into these are being replicated rather in areas that, you know, these technologies currently don't exist? And if so, you know, what are some of the companies that are doing a great job of that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm quite involved with a wallet in Africa called Chipper Cash. Without sharing too much about our plans on the forward-going basis, what is very clear is the ability to build a single wallet that works across seven geographies has been very powerful for our business. And I think there are very powerful network effects when you can, right? Like the lines of countries matter less than the emotional sensibility of the people in those countries, right? Like Max, you're from Germany, but you normally live in in New York, right? Like the ability for Max in New York and Max's friends and community in New York and Max's friends and community in Germany to all be on a single, seamless global platform, that's very powerful. And I think you know one thing that Chipper Cash has really shown me is the power of finding not just national network effects, but multi-jurisdictional network effects. And tapping into those can be incredible from a business model perspective. Awesome. Awesome.
1: ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results.